Welcome to the New Books in Philosophy channel of the New Books Network. My name is Robert Talese. I'm professor of philosophy at Vanderbilt University. I co-host the channel with Carrie Figder. Carrie is associate professor of philosophy at the University of Iowa. Today, my guest is Professor George Schur. His new book is titled Equality for Inegalitarians. It's just been published by Cambridge University Press. Schur is Herbert S. Autry Professor of Philosophy at Rice University. There's a long-standing debate in political philosophy regarding the fundamental point or aim of justice. According to one prominent view, the point of justice is to neutralize the influence of luck over individuals' shares of basic social goods. This view is known as luck egalitarianism, and it has been the subject of a range of critiques and defenses for the past several decades. In Equality for Inegalitarians, George Schur offers a decisive critical assessment of luck egalitarianism, and he develops his own positive view of distributive justice. According to Schur, the aim of justice is to enable each individual to live his or her life effectively. And this requires that each person be provided a sufficient share of central social goods. But it also requires that individuals be permitted to suffer the consequences of their choices. Equality for inegalitarians is a succinct and rigorous contribution to the theory of justice. Let's turn to the interview. Hello, George Schur. Hi, Bob. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, thank you. Um... It's 10 o'clock in Houston, and it's a beautiful sunny day, so things are good. Well, great. It's very nice in Nashville today, too, so uh, excellent. Um, thanks for joining us on New Books and Philosophy, and thank you, listeners, for downloading our podcast. Today, as you know, my guest is George Schur, and we'll be talking about his new book, which is titled Equality for Inegalitarians. Now, this book sort of both reviews and then tries to make a contribution to uh, a debate that has been central to political philosophy, at least since the 1980s. And it's a debate over what's sometimes called the point of justice. Um, to be a little more precise, uh, George's book engages with a family of views, uh, and a fam- family of influential views that have come to be known as luck egalitarianism. And in his book, George critically evaluates luck egalitarianism and then tries to offer an alternative that encompasses some of the virtues of the view while avoiding some of its vices. Um, now, luck egalitarianism is an intriguing view, and as anybody who uh, has encountered it in political philosophy knows, uh, it's a very complicated view, and there are lots of uh, interesting issues surrounding luck egalitarianism. Um, but um, before we get into uh, some of the details of George's book, uh, why don't we begin as we usually do? Uh, George, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Okay, sure. Um, well, I was born in Nutley, New Jersey, um, uh, where I grew up. My parents were, uh, I'm first generation, my parents were immigrants. I had a, a entirely, I think, normal American boyhood, lots of bike riding, uh, baseball, fishing, Trips to the library, um, just the usual, the usual stuff. I, and, and I was happy in Nutley. Um, I was educated at first at Brandeis University up in Waltham, Massachusetts, uh, then 
did my doctoral work at Columbia. Um, I was inspired by a number of teachers at Brandeis to uh, become interested in action theory. Um, that interest continued on uh, into graduate school, where I had the great good fortune to work with Arthur Danto, who was then working out his analytical philosophy of everything books. Uh, hmm. So I wrote my dissertation on on the question of whether reasons uh, reasons are causes and started you know started working professionally on that. Wrote some on philosophy of mind before it became clear that you actually have to know something to work in philosophy of mind. Those were the days when you really could do it uh, from your armchair. Um, But also this thing called what was then called reverse discrimination, um, now preferential treatment or affirmative action had come onto the horizon and and it, it caught my attention. Um, I first thought it was obviously wrong. Um, Then in thinking it through, started to think, well, no, there's more to it than that, and there may be a way of justifying some version of it. Wrote a paper on that. Um, it was well-received, and that sort of got me going in the normative areas, and I guess I never stopped going. Um, from uh, reverse discrimination, I moved into deeper issues of desert uh, and contemporary justice, and uh, as as listeners will know, the, the more deeply you work into this stuff, the more the more problems and the more interesting problems you find. So that's a kind of a life's work right there if you want it to be. Um, <laughs> my recent interest, I have two recent interests, recent, I, I suppose, the last 20 years, not so recent. <laughs> um, but I've been working in political philosophy and sort of a continuation of the action theory uh, interest um, involving moral psychology and issues of responsibility in particular, and these are very different fields. But I, I was I was thinking why 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 these two? And certainly one sort of unifying thread is the idea of control, which really works through weaves, weaves through a lot of a lot of what of what I've done um, in the moral psychology area. I've, I've now written two bo- two books both of which argue, each in its way, that agents can be blamed and can be held responsible um, for various sorts of traits and activities over which they lack control and never never did exercise control. Uh, so control, I think, is less necessary for responsibility than, and for blame than many people have thought. Um, and in political philosophy, too, in, in, in the recent book, in Inequality for Inegalitarians, um, I spend a lot of time arguing that uh, that the con- that contingent differences in people's circumstances um, in the in the details of their lives um, are pervasive and are inescapable and are sort of fixed features of the human scene. And the thought there again is that um, it's just misguided, wrong-headed to try to eliminate um, any and all inequalities that stem from factors that are beyond the party's control. So once again, it turns out that control plays a less central role this time um, in um, determining the, uh, the demands of justice that, that many have thought. And I won't speculate about what, what personality traits or character traits lead me to be so 
uh, so interested in control, but clearly there's something there. <laughs> well, why don't we um, begin then? Um, so since you have worked in a very um, a broad range uh, of areas of philosophy, um, maybe we can begin by, you know, can you tell us something about how you understand the sort of aim of philosophy or what, what, what are we doing when we are sort of writing philosophy or thinking philosophically? Yeah, um, I think that is actually a more complicated question than uh, is, is often appreciated. Uh, um, when I think about it, I, I actually think of three different things that are uh, important to me um, that sort of move me to write um, alternatively three masters that I'm trying to serve all at once. Um, so one obviously is some kind of truth in uh, you're trying to get at the view that seems to have the most going for it, that can be supported by the best arguments and so on. Um, uh, you have you haven't you failed if you haven't um, I won't say get gotten it right, but um, uh, at least you need to the aim is to defend some kind of uh, defend a view um, that has something going for it, and uh, the aim in writing it up is to explain what you think that view does have going for it. So very roughly, truth is one master. Um, another that's sort of less remarked is, is roughly art. Um, it seems to me that um, uh, the philosophical essay and also the monograph are, in a way, art forms. And like any other art forms. They have internal standards, and you can satisfy those standards um, more or less less well. So I sort of look at it as creating art uh, in the medium of ideas or something, something like that, medium of ideas and arguments. Um, and so it's important to me to, to, make, to make something beautiful or as beautiful as I can. Um, the proportions need to be right. Um, there are difficult decisions to be made about what goes goes into footnotes uh, and what gets left out entirely. Um, And those decisions, I think, are often made, for me at least, on aesthetic grounds. Um, Transitions uh, are uh, very important. Um, Getting uh, Saying it simply rather than complicating it. Um, I mean, the, the... the, the sequence is for, first you make it big and ugly, and then you make it small <laughs> and beautiful. Um, and of course, uh, getting, getting word choice is important. Um, uh, having a colorful or a pungent word and, you know, in the, in the, in the sea of philosophical gray is important. Um, so there are a lot of sort of aesthetic factors. And, and to me, that's, that's very important. I'm, I'm, I am trying to create artworks as well as saying, so, say something roughly true. Um, and since it's political philosophy, there's always the question of sort of um, uh, having an impact. And I think, I mean, I think some people who work in this field really do so with the aim of affecting the way people think and act for the better. And you know, certainly a, a worthy aspiration. Um, but I think for most of us, utterly unrealistic. Um, 
there's a lot of philosophy out there and there's a lot of good philosophy. And um, a lot of people make very interesting arguments for uh, radically disparate positions. Um, unless you, number one, are a tower, towering figure and or number two, just catch a wave, um, what you say is not going to have a major impact on society. Um, it is, however, a contribution to a conversation. And I, I saw that someplace and it always struck me, yeah, that's right. It's a conversation. Um, you're, you're sort of adding some organic material to the mulch of ideas. Um, and uh, anything more than the aspiration to do anything more than that, I think, is something of a pipe dream. But I, I also think that's good enough. Right. Well, excellent. Um so, uh, you know, well, let me say one thing that uh, the uh, Equality for an Egalitarian's book um, uh, uh, is uh, surprisingly, uh, given um, uh, sort of what, what, what sometimes uh, we pick up in our field, uh, it is a really beautifully written book. <laughs> um, Thank you. So, uh, uh, I'm sorry? I wasn't fishing for that. No, no, no. I, uh, I, I know, but it, uh, it, it, all of your writing um, is kind of refreshingly direct and uh, and well crafted. So uh, this book was 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 among them. And um, I remember um, when I had when the book had come out, I first got it and recommended it to a student. Um, the student uh, sort of flipped through it and and said, "This is only 180 pages." <laughs> As I think the thought was that, you know, what 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 can be done philosophically in only 180 pages? I said, well, if you write clearly and precisely, you can say a whole lot in a small uh, uh, number of pages. So um, why don't we turn to the to get to that 180 pages? They had to use big print, wide margins and bulk paper. <laughs> um uh, well, the, the the book says a lot more in 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 the space that 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 it takes up than um, than lots of books that are twice its size. I think. Um, so um, why don't we then turn directly to the book since we've been uh, uh, talking about it in an indirect way, um, and maybe the place to start is um, with some of the the thoughts that that you were mentioning a moment ago, um, where you uh, were alluding to. Um, some of the longstanding issues about um, distributive justice and particularly about this now family of views called luck egalitarianism. Um, and, uh, you know, again, anybody who's working in political philosophy will have, uh, you know, encountered um, lots of different uh, debates uh, uh, in the area or in the neighborhood of luck egalitarianism and will have probably read lots of defenses and criticisms uh, of the view. Um, but maybe for those who um, are listening who aren't familiar with luck egalitarianism and the, some of the uh, ins and outs of the debates that have been going on, um, maybe it would be good to begin there. So uh, can you tell us a little bit about luck egalitarianism and um, uh, what are its motivations and some of its main features? Sure. So first of all, luck egalitarianism is a theory of distributive justice. Um, distributive justice asks the question, um, how should the important things that people can have different amounts of um, be distributed among them? 
Um, there are lots of debates within uh, among theorists of distributive justice as to just what it is whose distribution is uh, important. Um, some people talk about um, resources, roughly, uh, roughly money. Um, some people t- and what it can buy. Uh, some people talk about the subjective aspects of well-being. Some people talk about opportunities, and there are other options in the field as well. But um, distributive justice asks, um, um, how should whatever goods are uh, most fundamental um, be distributed among persons? Um, one obvious entry into the um, principle, into the uh, principles of distribution sweepstakes is equality. That is, a lot of people have said for a lot of different reasons that there's something special about an equal distribution. Um, that it's, maybe it's just the default view or um, uh, maybe deviations from it require some special justification. Um, but equality figures prominently in debates about distributive justice. But there's a, a problem about equality which is that if you really favor the equal distribution of, um, uh, of whatever good is most important, then um, those who, let's say, work hard are going to have no more than those who don't work hard. Um, those who foolishly squander their, um, their resources, let's say, um, are not going to have any less than those who husband them and use them wi- uh, wisely. Um, generally, if you go for equality, then um, uh, your uh, distributive practices will not be sensitive to things like people's choices um, or um, uh, what they're responsible for or anything of that sort. Um, it it was to accommodate this difficulty within the general framework of equality um, that uh, the family of views known as luck egalitarianism arose. And it did start, I think, with Ronald Dworkin's um, magisterial essays in 1981, What is Equality Part 1 and What is Equality Part 2? And then Dworkin has developed uh, this view uh, in, in many places since. But the thought is that the principle we ought to go for is not strict equality, um, but rather equality plus a qualification. Uh, namely, um, inequalities that don't stem from people's choices are to be rectified or eliminated, are unjust, but and here's the qualification, inequalities that do can be traced back to the different choices that the parties have made, or have made under fair conditions, perhaps. Those sorts of equalities are okay. So, um, to take a simple stark example, um, if the parties start out with the same amount, um, but one wastes it, and uh, one uh, uh, doesn't waste it, but husbands it, um, then the resulting inequality is okay because both parties had had a chance to end up with what the better off party uh, did end up with, but they made different choices and so ended up with different amounts. 
and inequalities that can be traced to, uh, to differential choices made by the parties are acceptable in a way that others are not. That's, that's lucky egalitarianism in a nutshell. Right, and I guess that just one one other sort of stark example, just to um, uh, for those again who are listening who aren't familiar, would be um, cases where individuals um, are uh, granted different shares of some important good on the basis of traits that they had no control, traits they might manifest that they had no control over. So, like eye color, for example, um, it would be unjust, I take it, by luck egalitarian lights if um, having blue eyes were um, a uh, sufficient condition uh, for getting some greater share of some important benefit and having brown eyes were sufficient for having less due to the fact that one can't, you know, one, one has no control over one's eyes or one's eyes color, rather. Does that sound right? No, that's exactly right. It's, uh, lucky egalitarianism is a conjunctive view. It says that inequalities are uh, uh, just if but only if they can be traced to differences in the party's choices. So the case you mention is an inequality which cannot be traced to differences in the party's choices, therefore unjust. Perfect. Um, so this is a, uh, a, a an intriguing thought, by the way. I mean, and I, I think that you do a very nice job in the book, um, even though luck egalitarianism is coming in for some serious criticism. Um, you know, there is something kind of intuitive about the idea, <laughs> uh, I think. Um, so uh, a lot of uh, the philosophical, you know, devils are in the details now. Um, so one, I guess, sort of um, uh, um, main uh, fulcrum or one target uh, for critics is this distinction between um, what we might say, you know, the distinction between what befalls a person or what, you know, what is due to luck and um, what they choose or what they have control over. Um, and I want to sort of get into that in, in, in one, one minute because that is sort of centrally one of your targets, um, the so-called luck choice principle of luck egalitarianism. But first, you, I, I think you make a really interesting uh, observation about uh, two different forms that luck egalitarianism might take. There's a monistic and a pluralistic form. Could you uh, tell us a little bit about that distinction? Sure. Um, so that because luck egalitarianism is a conjunctive view, uh, conjoins two different claims, um, there is the question of uh, each one needs to be justified separately. Um, these inequalities are just, those other ones are unjust, and you need two separate justifications. And um, the question is how you are, how you can go about justifying the inegalitarian conjunct of luck egalitarianism, the one that says inequalities are okay as long as they can be traced back to differences in the party's choices. And roughly speaking, there are two ways you can go here. Uh, one way is to say, uh, for a lucky egalitarian to say um, the justification for that inegalitarian conjunct um, has, in some sense, the same source as the justification for the egalitarian conjunct, that both claims are justified by appeal to some common uh, um, uh, normative, uh, normative claim or standard. That they both have, uh, they have, they both in a way have the same source. Um, the other way to go is to say, 
Well, um, the, the egalitarian claim, um, uh, inequalities that don't trace the choice are unjust. Um, that has one sort of justification. Um, and, and the inegalitarian conjunct has another justification. And so uh, just, just to, to coin terms, you can say the first approach is monistic and the second approach is pluralistic. Pluralistic in the sense that the two conjuncts are justified by appeals to different sorts of normative principles. Right. And so let's begin then with the pluralistic views, um, which you think are more obviously vulnerable than um, than the monistic. Well, well, then particularly one version of the monistic view that you think is quite formidable, uh, which we'll talk about in a second. So the pluralistic views, as you just said, um, appeal to different values or, or different sort of normative concepts. Uh, one in justifying the inegalitarian commitment of luck egalitarianism and a different one in justifying the egalitarian commitment of luck egalitarianism. Um, can you tell us a little bit about um, different ways of construing those the, the, those two separate values and um, w- where you think the, the pluralistic versions particularly uh, uh, fail? Okay, so the question to ask is, why might someone think that inequalities are acceptable or justified, provided that they are traceable back to differences in the party's choices. What is it about choice that's normative, that might be normatively significant here? And um, in thinking that through, it occurred to me that there are at least three possibilities. Um, one possibility is that choice is significant because there is great value in people's exercising control over their own lives. And, of course, our choices are the means through which we exercise, or the medium through which we exercise control. Um, so the value of control is one possibility. Um, another possibility is that um, when someone when someone's situation is traceable back to his choices, then at least very often the situation is something for which he himself is responsible. Um, And responsibility also is a normatively significant notion. Um, So it may have something to do with the the normative implications of responsibility as opposed to control. Or third, um, um, when someone is responsible for uh, his his own... um, uh, situation uh, or an aspect of his own situation, um, then very often uh, it can be said that he deserves to be where he is. Um, um, uh, many choices that many outcomes that stem from from choice from choice are deserved, and desert is also a an important normative notion. So the justification for these inequalities might also be that they're deserved when they can be traced back to choice. Those, as far as I can see, are the three main possibilities. Right, and so uh, can you run us? I mean, I know it's a it's a it's a series of complicated arguments, uh, but um, what do you think is the, the the sort of main vulnerability of uh, of the pluralistic? Uh, version now. Uh, I mean, just foreshadowing it. It seems that um, uh, any view in philosophy that has this pluralistic, as we've just are now using the term structure, is inviting trouble because it looks as if you've got you know two conjuncts. They're being justified by appeal to a different concept. 
it looks like that's just inviting all kinds of trouble because now you've got two things that have to hang together in the right way in order for the view to, to work. Um, can you tell us a little bit about where you think the pluralistic version of luck egalitarianism um, is most vulnerable? Well, all right. So uh, let me run through the, the three possibilities quickly. Um, so with control, um, clearly what's valuable about, about, uh, about control um, is only that, that each person exercise control over his own life. Um, that's what's important, that we control what happens to us. Um, and that doesn't, an appeal to that value doesn't sort of fit well with the task of justifying an inequality, because an inequality, of course, is a, a, always a relation um, between uh, what one person has and what another person has. And the... I guess the thrust of the criticism is that even if it's valuable for each person to exercise control over what he has, um, the value doesn't extend to um, the person's exercising control over uh, the relation between what he has and what anyone else has. That's no part of the value of control as far as I can see. Um, is that okay? Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah, it should be enough because there's a lot more to go. Okay, um, so with responsibility, I think um, there, there, there are there there are normative implications to being responsible for one's situation, um, and one one prominent implication goes like this: Well, if you're responsible for only having as much as you have, right? Uh, you brought it on yourself, um, and then you see somebody else has more and you say, well, you know, he's got more. Um, I mean, in a way you don't have a complaint, right? Um, it was given that you could have chosen to have to end up with as much as he does, but you made a different choice and you only have this, this lesser amount. Um, if, if, if you were to complain, well, how come he has more, more than I do? Then the answer is, well, you don't have any complaint because it, um, it was your, as a result of your own choice that you have only this much, and uh, uh, not more, um, you don't have any complaint if you're responsible for having as much, uh, as, much as you do, but neither is there any, uh, any positive requirement that you have only that much. Um, but in order for the inequality to be, uh, to, be, to be justified, there has to be some kind of positive reason for it to exist when it traces back to your choice, um, because... Um, if you're a lucky egalitarian, you do think that there is a positive case for equality. And in this context, the case for inequality has to dominate or trump or beat the case for equality. And even if you're you have no complaint about having less, um, the fact that you're responsible for it doesn't doesn't give any positive reason for you to have less. Um, and so doesn't uh, doesn't provide uh, a counterweight to the case for equality. Um, that gets established in some independent way. Um, and so um, and so there's no positive justification for the inequality here. That's the basic problem. Um, okay, and now where dessert is concerned, um, when you look carefully at the reasons why when you look carefully at situations in which people have less 
less than others as a result of uh, their own choices. Um, when you look carefully at, at cases in which people have less than others as a result of their own choices, um, you, don't, you don't find the conditions that would have to prevail in order for it to be the case that their choices render, have rendered them less deserving. I mean, um, dessert is a complicated notion, and I, I wrote a book about it once. Um, there, there are different reasons for people to deserve different things. Um, the, probably the three most important in this context are, first, people can become deserving as a result of, uh, of the effort that they've put in. They can deserve things if they've worked hard. Um, on, on another account, people can de- deserve things as a result of their greater productivity. Um, uh, on yet another account, people de- deserve things uh, on the basis of their moral uh, moral virtue. Um, but those who have made bad choices and turn out to have less than other people um, aren't often aren't any less deserving in uh, in any of these ways. It's not like um, the person who gambles away his income has worked less hard than others in order to uh, to earn it. I mean, he may have worked just as hard as just this bad choice and he gambled it away. Um, so uh, lack of effort, effort doesn't seem to make him less deserving, uh, nor necessarily is, is he uh, uh, a less productive member of society. He may be very productive. It's just that he's got this gambling habit and so it all goes. Um, and neither again is it the case that um, he's a worse person than anybody else. Um, uh, making imprudent choices just doesn't correlate in any systematic way with moral character. So when you look at the kinds of things that might render people deserving of the lesser amounts that they have, um, it turns out that none of them correlate in any interesting way um, with the kinds of bad choices that lead to people having less than others. Great. So it looks then that the... um that the pluralistic views are going to have this this trouble with the inegalitarian component, um, but there is a, a, a particularly well developed and I think formidable uh, will agree version of the luck egalitarian view um, that's monistic that owes ultimately uh, to Ronald Dworkin as we've already mentioned, and um, since the Dworkin view um, has as its core. Um, a certain normative commitment that uh, is very close to, you know, the one that's driving your own positive view. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about the, the Dworkonian sort of uh, monistic alternative version of, uh, of the luck egalitarian view? Yes. Um, so Dworkin is quite explicit. Dworkin's a great unifier. Um, um, he's a hedgehog. He's a hedgehog. <laughs> right. Um, so, um, what look to be different values are just different uh, aspects or angles, aspects of or angles on a sort of single larger value. That's a, that's a, a basic move that, that Dworkin makes often. And he makes it here. Um, uh, he argues that both the inegalitarian and the egalitarian uh, conjuncts of what has, has become known as luck egalitarianism um, are derivable from a single ideal, um, which he designates the ideal of equality of resources. And here I should just interject. 
I think Dworkin is the um, uh, Dworkin's view is the source of lucky egalitarianism, but he himself insisted that he was not a lucky egalitarian, um, and he gave a number of interesting reasons for that. Um, uh, um, but still, the structure is, of his view is, is similar enough that we can we can consider it in this context. So both conjuncts, he argues. Um, can be traced back to the single ideal of equality of resources. And the equality of resources idea um, can in turn be traced to, to a deeper idea, which Dworkin thinks is the fundamental idea in, in political philosophy, which is that all citizens are owed, as he puts it, equal concern and respect. And equalizing resources is sort of the, distri- the, the distributive arm of affording all citizens equal concern and respect. So the question is, how can Dworkin get inequality from equality of resources? Well, he, he makes a number of moves, and maybe I'll just mention um, the one uh, the one that can be put most simply. Um, uh, Dworkin points out that resources is a uh, the idea of resources is a kind of a capacious notion um, in that um, one way to think about the resources that are available to a person is to think not just of uh, the amount of money he has or the amount of uh, goods that he has, um, but also to think about um, the amount of uh, roughly leisure that he has, that is, the amount of control over his own time. Um, And one thing that Dworkin points out is that really, if you want to equalize resources in this broader, broader way, uh, understood in this broader sense, then um, there are kind of trade-offs between the amount, let's say, of uh, wealth that a person has and the amount of leisure that he has. So that someone who has more wealth um, might have it as a result of having had less leisure. That is, he may have had to work very hard for this amount of wealth. Um, So if we take uh, equality of resources to apply to people over over their complete lives, which Dworkin thinks we we should do, um, then what you need to equalize is not just wealth, but rather um, the package of wealth and resources um, that different people have. And that opens the door for saying that inequalities of wealth um, are, can be consistent with equality of resources um, if a person's advantage in this aspect of resources is counterbalanced by a disadvantage uh, in this other aspect of resources. Um, that's one of the moves that, that Dworkin makes. He makes others, but I think it would take too much time to go into them. I, I can if, if you'd like me to, Bob. No, no, no. no, no that, that, that's sufficient. Um, uh, so... Um, and but but it is uh, you're, you're correct to point out that 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 Dworkin did not embrace the label of um, uh, luck egalitarianism for his view. And it, and we should also, I guess, mention that um, uh, the term luck egalitarianism was introduced as a kind of term of derision yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, in an immensely uh, important article by Elizabeth Anderson published in 1999. Called, I think, what is the point of equality? Is that right? That's 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 right. Uh, that's right. A, a really marvelous uh, article. Um, uh, but it, 
it does sort of seem to fit in with i mean even as it as it gets developed the, the dworkin view does seem to fit in with the broader um structure of luck egalitarianism because it does i guess uh have at its core some distinction between you know that part of a person's holdings that we can hold him responsible for perhaps and that part which is due to features of his life that he can't be held responsible for is that right yes Good. Um, so, uh, and there's a, again, for people who aren't familiar with this, there's a sort of really uh, amazing and in some ways uh, a frustrating debate that goes on through several rounds between uh, Dworkin and Jerry Cohen about um, some of that, uh, the philosophical matters pertaining to that kind of distinction. Yes. Uh, yeah. Um, so let's move to the positive view then. Um, because you pick up on uh, at least one way of understanding uh, the sort of central normative commitment that drives uh, a Dworkin as well as many others about um, sort of equal respect um, and, you know, trying to to make sense of the, the fundamental uh, commitment to moral equality. Um, so um, can you tell us a little bit about uh, your positive view about, you know, the feature of human human persons or human lives uh, in virtue of which uh, they are moral equals? Sure. Um, so going back to Dworkin just for a second, um, Dworkin's normative ed- edifice rests on this idea um, that all people are owed equal, con- all citizens are owed uh, equal concern and, uh, and respect. Um, interestingly, and he advances equality of resources as the best, uh, the best interpretation of the distributive aspect of displaying uh, equal concern and respect for all persons. Um, but interestingly, he never explains uh, why that's so. And in particular, Dworkin never explains um, just why it is that all persons are owed equal concern and respect. I mean, clearly there's some idea that we're all, in a deep sense, moral equals, equal from the moral point of view, which is not to say that we should be treated equally, but it is to say that in uh, thinking about the principles that determine how we should be treated, um, each of us or each of our interests should, uh, sh- should have the same weight. Um, uh, the, the input, uh, the input to our thinking about normative principles, um, is equality, is, is our equality as moral persons and the output then are principles that may license differential treatment in various ways. Um, but, uh, the basis for the input, uh, the moral equality of persons really is never explained at all by Dworkin. And it, I mean, uh, other philosophers have talked about it, but it's a tremendously frustrating exercise to talk about it because, um, I mean, a natural way to frame the question is, is yeah, okay, we're, uh, we all count the same, we're all moral equals. Why is that? What is it about us that makes us moral equals? And as soon as you put the problem that way, um, you run into trouble because when you look for something about us that might be the source of our moral equality, um, you often come up blank. It's natural to look for some sort of empirical feature that we all have 
and we all have equally. And in virtue of this having this feature, we all matter equally. And there is no such feature. I mean, people differ. This is is a a sweeping statement, but I'm sure it's true. People (laughs) differ along every empirical dimension. I mean, some people are uh, smarter than others. Uh, Some people are more talented in any way you can name than than others. Um, uh, Some uh, people differ. Some people are morally better than others. uh, that is more willing to sort of subordinate their interests to principles that you know satisfy some or you know whatever whatever moral test you accept um, um, some are more cooperative than others uh, some are altruistic some are egoistic any empirical dimension that you might think of people differ so how come we're moral equals um, that's the question that I try to answer in what I think is the pivotal chapter of the book, the fifth chapter, right in the middle. Um, And roughly the answer that I give is that there is one respect in which we're all equals, and that is that each of us has a subjectivity. Each of us um, occupies a point of view on the world that's accessible to him alone. We have an internality, each of us. We have an, an inside, you could say. Um, and I think it, I think for a variety of reasons that th- this idea of having a subjectivity or maybe being a subjectivity um, is a good fit for the role that we're trying to fill, namely the role of being uh, a basis for our moral equality. Um, and let me just mention three three features that make it a good fit. Mm-hmm. I mean, first of all, it um, it's not an empirical feature. It's not empirical in the sense that it's not accessible to other people. I mean, you know, clearly, psychologists study consciousness. Um, neurophysiologists study consciousness. Lots of people study consciousness. Um, but it's always from the outside. We can, we, can study, um, we can study the physical underpinnings of consciousness, and we can study its manifestations through behavior. Um, but what it's like to be you is something that's accessible to you alone. That's what I mean when I say that uh, our subjectivity as subjectivity um, is, not, is not empirical at all. Um, having a subjectivity is an all-or-nothing matter. Either you have one or you don't. Now, clearly, our subjectivities vary greatly in their contents and in, uh, in their complexity and their de- degrees of differentiation and all of that. Um, but either there is something that it's like for you to be you um, or there isn't. In that respect, having a subjectivity is, uh, is, in fact, all or nothing. And finally, I think it seems to me... Um, uh, others can check their own intuitions. It seems to me that this uh, this has the right intuitive feel um, for the basis of our our moral importance. And what I mean by that is, I mean, think about a zombie. Uh, zombie is a term of art in philosophy now. <laughs> uh, uh, it's amazing what philosophers will come up with, but but it's a useful term of art. Um, so a zombie is or would be if it were 
possible or even conceivable, um, would be something exactly like a human being. Um, the, the same physical organization, uh, the same uh, complex behavior, the same purposive behavior, like us in every single respect, except that it has no interiority. There's nothing it's like to be a zombie. Um, there's no phenomenal content to the zombie. And my, my thought is that if there were zombies, they wouldn't matter morally. Who cares what happens to a zombie? If there's nothing that it's like to be one, if there is no sort of experience that the zombie has, then who cares what happens to it? I mean, the lights are on, but nobody's home. Who cares? Um, so, and if that's true, then um, the reason we do matter is exactly that we do have this internal world that we occupy and will occupy until we die. Um, so for all those reasons, I think having a subjectivity is, uh, is what makes us morally important and what makes each of us morally important because each of us has a subjectivity. Each of us is a world of his own, a world unto himself. So that's, that's my proposed answer to the question that Dworkin, I think, never uh, squarely addresses. And you think that the, um, this fundamental um, uh, basis of our moral equality also sort of generates or entails, I don't know exactly how strong the relation is, that we have a, 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 a common fundamental moral interest. Is that right? Yes. Uh, yes, that's the next move. Not only does each human being have a subjectivity, but each human being's subjectivity is structured in basically the same way. Uh, you could, the way I put it in the book is structured around uh, a number of sort of very basic assumptions, um, such as um, I exist in a world uh, of space and time. Um, um, uh, uh, um, my existence is temporally extended in, in, in that I can project myself at least a certain distance into, into the future. Um, uh, I have some degree of control over what I, uh, what I will do uh, in the future. Um, uh, the options that are open to me are governed by reasons. That is, I have, I have better reason to do some things than to do other things. Um, I'm capable of, uh, at least to a degree, figuring out um, or seeing what I have good reason to do and um, uh, coordinating my actions with my beliefs about my reasons. Now, all of this is sort of put in terms that um, uh, people don't bring to consciousness, but I think that... Um, uh, Every human being, or certainly every normal or near-normal human being, um, not only has a consciousness, but has a consciousness that's sort of structured in this way. Um, and I think, too, that having a consciousness with, uh, with these structural features I mean, channels you into, into a certain, uh, certain way of living. Um, uh, we can't not try to form beliefs about the world. We can't not try to assess our reasons. We can't not try to guide our behavior on the basis of our reasons and so on. So the, the, the kind of consciousness we have 
channels us into basically a life of reason-based practical activity. Um, and the kinds of activities into which we are channeled are, in an interesting way, governed by standards. Um, to, to think that there are reasons to do some things rather than, uh, than others uh, and to try to, uh, uh, try to figure out what those reasons are um, is to try to get it right. Um, to ask what goals we ought to achieve is uh, to be committed to pursuing goals that are achievable and reasonable in light of our circumstances. Um, to pursue goals is to try to succeed in accomplishing whatever the goal is and so on. Um, so the kinds of activities into which we're channeled, the kinds of activities that sort of characterize us as, um, um, as, as human beings, are, are governed by standards. They're, you can do them well, you can do them badly. And my suggestion is that um, if those standards uh, apply to the activities that are built right into the consciousness uh, that makes us, uh, that, 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 that is the basis of our moral standing, um, then the satisfaction of those standards, roughly speaking, must, must be our, uh, a deep interest that we have, must be our fundamental interest. And uh, a term of art that I introduce to, to designate that interest is I say, well, we have this basic interest in living our lives effectively. That is, um, uh, um, satisfying the standards that are built into the activities uh, into which our consciousness, our, our, the structure of our consciousness channels us. Great. So, um, and again, that was a... That was a nice description of, of what looks to me like an intricate but you know intuitive um, you know, inference, right, from uh, what you say is the basis of our moral equality to uh, this fundamental moral interest that we share uh, of, uh, as you say, living effectively. Um, so let's then say, okay, so what are the distributive? What are the implications of distributive justice for this? So we all have this interest in fundamental moral interest in living effectively. Um, what does that mean uh, as far as the, the sort of fundamental question of distributive justice as you laid it out at the beginning of the conversation goes? Okay. Now, there, uh, okay. So there are actually, I think, a number of um, uh, important implications. Um, I mean, one is, one is this, that if a person is to live his life effectively, um, then he must exercise a genuine influence over the course of that life. That is, if someone sort of got to the stage of assessing reasons and maybe make, making choices on the basis of those reasons, but, but what he chose had no relation to what came after it, um, had no relation to how his life went after it. Um, you, you make all these choices, but they're just, um, uh, uh, they, ha they have no impact on the world. What happens in, uh, to you in the world and what happens in the world um, is determined entirely by other people or by, uh, um, um, uh, uh, by society um, or, or, or just by nothing. Um, you wouldn't be living your own life if you made choices, but, uh, but your choices were not um, generally effective. 
So living a life of your own, I think, means uh, making choices um, whose uh, intended and predicted consequences um, are, uh, uh, for the most part, uh, allowed to play themselves out. Um, that's important because another way of saying that is that you're not living your own life. You're not really living your own life unless you uh, unless um, you live with the consequences of the decisions that uh, that you make. Um, given that, and given that this uh, p- part of what justice requires is that each person. Uh, be put in a position to live his his life effectively, which I think it does, Um, then what follows is that um, in order to do what justice requires, in order to put people in in a position to live their lives effectively, um, the state must allow them to live with their consequences of many of their choices, including many of their bad choices. So this is an important, I think, point of convergence Convergence with with luck egalitarianism in that just like the luck egalitarian, um, I accept the legitimacy and the justice of many choice related inequalities. Um, That's a point of agreement. But of course, my reason for accepting uh, for thinking that such inequalities are just is is very different from the reason that's um, offered up by by the luck egalitarian. So that's one distributive implication. Um, Bob, is it okay if I talk a little bit about um, uh, um, the, the, the result, the, 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 the rethinking of the relation between uh, choice and contingency that, um, that falls out of this? Sure. Yeah, please. Okay, yeah, this, this is actually, I think, an important part of the book. Um, just think about, think about the relation between choice and luck. So for the luck egalitarian, um, luck and choice are, well, luck and choice are by definition mutually exclusive. I mean, luck is just whatever isn't chosen. And the luck egalitarian holds that inequalities that are due to luck are chosen, therefore due to luck, are unjust. So for the luck egalitarian, luck is the enemy of justice, right? Insofar as there are inequalities that are due to luck rather than choice, uh, to that extent, the distribution of goods is is unjust. And um, I, I, I assign luck or contingency uh, really a very different role. I mean, I, I do think that luck and choice are complementary in a way, but in a very different way. Um, I mean, for the luck egalitarian, luck is the complement of choice in the sense that together they divide up the terrain. Um, in my view, luck is the comp- is complementary to choice in that contingency is the necessary background of choice. To live one's life effectively, or really to live it at all, um, is, among other things, constantly to be making choices. But Whatever we do choose, uh, whatever choices we do made, make, are made against a background of contingent circumstances uh, that is not itself chosen. The amount of contingency in our lives just dwarfs the amount of uh, 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 the amount that's uh, within our uh, control or subject to our choice. I mean, 
just you know, think about how much in your life, in everyone's life, is not chosen and cannot be chosen. Um, uh, the era in which you're born, um, uh, your psychological makeup, um, who you meet when, um, what the market thinks about, uh, what the market thinks about, what you have to offer. Um, what options are available at any given time? How how the economy is going? How um, how your children are doing? Uh, how your marriage is going? It goes on and on. Um, uh, all of these factors, of course, um, provide a backdrop against <clears throat> against which we make choices and against which some choices are more reasonable than other choices. Um, but the idea that that it's possible to sort of tame contingency and eliminate all inequalities that um, um, uh, can't be traced back to the choices of the parties strikes me as just crazy. Um, <laughs> contingency, we, we're, we, we're afloat, adrift in a sea of contingency. And um, any choices that we make presuppose a vast amount of situation um, that is utterly beyond our control. Um, and it must be utterly beyond our control. So I don't see luck as the enemy of justice. Um, I see luck as the background against which we make the choices which, when we make them effectively, um, satisfy the requirements of justice. Excellent. Um, so let me, I want to make sure that we get to this, and, and uh, you've been very generous with your time, so um, we're, we're, we're coming on, uh, on, on an hour. Um, but um, the view, the positive proposal that you make uh, winds up, um, at least in one of its major aspects, uh, and this is why the, the book has the title it does, uh, it, it's, it's, a, it's a non-egalitarian view because there's a, a sufficientarian sort of component to it. Can you, can you tell us about that? Yeah, yeah, I'm glad we got to that. I was yeah. <laughs> worried there. Um, sure. So if the primary – hello, Bob, are you still there? Yes, I am. Okay. Um, I mean, if, if the sort of the primary idea is to put each person in a position to live his life effectively, then the question uh, and and if I mean, what another way to put that and the way I do put it in the book is that um, the the good whose distribution is fundamentally in question is the good of being able to live one's life effectively. And if that's the fundamental good to be distributed, then the other things that, with which distribution, uh, distributive justice has been concerned, um, wealth, opportunities, and the like, um, assume a secondary importance. Um, wealth, resources, for example, um, is important exactly because of its uh, uh, contrib- the contribution that it makes to a person's ability to live his life effectively. Um, and so if the point is to put uh, everyone in a position to live his life effectively, then the amount of wealth that's required is whatever amount of wealth um, will, in conjunction with uh, the, the other goods that the person has, um, enable him to live his life effectively. Um, so it's a sufficiency view uh, of, of the distribution, for example, of wealth. As long as people have enough wealth to be able to live their lives uh, effectively, um, it's no um, it's no sin against justice that other people have more wealth. It's a, in, in this respect, I think, a strongly individualistic view. Um, 
there's a threshold, um, uh, a threshold uh, of, as, as, as I argue, um, a combined threshold of wealth and opportunity, because wealth is so easily convertible into opportunity and opportunity is so easily convertible into wealth. I, I think it's important to treat them both together. Um, but there's a certain threshold of wealth and opportunity um, beyond which uh, or at which justice is satisfied, uh, the requirements of justice um, are satisfied. So in that respect, it's sufficient terror. It's a sufficiency view um, about wealth and uh, uh, wealth and opportunity. Um, interestingly, it's not even a sufficiency view about subjective welfare, because um, how happy a person is. There's very little relation, though not none, I guess, but very little relation to his ability to live his life effectively. And since uh, since the importance of the uh, the other more traditional goods is exactly the contribution they make to people's ability to live their lives effectively, um, I don't think justice is is much concerned should be much concerned with how happy people are. Um, in that respect, uh, my view stands in pretty stark contrast both to many lucky egalitarians and to many other theorists who think that the important thing to be distributed is uh, subjective well-being or welfare or happiness. Um, I think I think it, I think that's a byproduct of what's what's really important and not the focus of our and should not be the focus of our thinking about justice. Well, George, that, that was very uh, helpful. Um, and as I say, uh, uh, You've been uh, very, very generous with your time. So um, let me just ask the final question I always ask, which is, um, uh, where will you, will, what, you know, to what will you turn your attention next? Uh, so uh, you've, you've written influential things about uh, matters and responsibility, deserts, uh, state neutrality, uh, and now um, uh, justice and equality. Uh, what's the next project looking like? Well, I thought that I was going to do a series of articles or uh, maybe a book on the normative and the analytical issues that are raised by the notion of effort, which I think is sort of an important but under-theorized notion. But so far, I haven't really found a way in. Um, and so maybe I just don't have much to say about it. Maybe it's interesting but I don't have about it. Um, so I'm not doing that now. And what I'm doing instead is um, basically responding to invitations to write things that are continuations of what uh, what I've already done. So I've um, written a bunch of papers on uh, blame and moral ignorance, omissions, um, desert and justice. And the current project is a paper called How Bad Is It to Be Dominated? <laughs> uh, which, as you might, might, uh, might figure out, um, is a critical discussion of what's become known as democratic egalitarianism. That's the view that Elizabeth Anderson uh, uh, develops in the paper that we mentioned earlier, which says that non-domination is the fundamental political value. As you might expect, I don't agree with that, and I think it's interesting to figure out why, and that's, um, that's what I'm currently engaged in trying to do. Well, that sounds very exciting, and uh, I'll keep an eye on on the journals for um, uh, you know for the fruits of that, um, and I'll also keep an eye out for uh, the next book, whatever it it may turn out uh, to be on. Um, but for now, uh, George, let me just thank you once again for uh, talking to us about your new book, uh, Equality for Inegalitarians. Uh, 
Have a good day now. Thank, thank you so much, Bob. Take care. You've been listening to my interview with Professor George Schur of Rice University. We were talking about his new book, Equality for Inegalitarians, newly published by Cambridge University Press. I'm Robert Talese, your host. This is New Books in Philosophy. Thank you for listening.